Hello everyone, welcome to the Fun Boat Diplomacy Podcast. Uh, my time here in San Francisco is actually coming to an end. In ten days I will be on my way on a road trip from San Francisco down to L.A., stopping at places like Monterey, Big Sur of course, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and finally Los Angeles. Uh, and from there I'll be flying to Seattle, spending some time there, and going down to Oregon, spending some time there, and then finally arriving back in the Bay Area. So I hope I see you all on the road somewhere, if you are on the way, and I will be meeting uh, a bunch of people that I've met on my travels uh, down there uh, and up north. I don't know why I said down there, just meaning south from here, everywhere south of San Francisco, and also north in the Pacific Northwest, which I've never visited yet. Um, okay, let's get these plugs out of the way, as always, and we can get into this week's episode. Uh, if you want to support the podcasting, use Amazon. You can use my Amazon portal link located on the right side of any of my pages on funboatdiplomacy.com. Bookmark that page. Use my page. Uh, it looks just like any other Amazon page you'll see, just that it's linked to me. And when you make a purchase, Amazon gives me a small cut. Uh, on top of that, I have a Patreon uh, account. Uh, Patreon is a platform, for those of you who don't know, that uh, gives pledged support to people who are creatives or have some sort of project. So you can, for example, if you think my episodes are worth a dollar an episode, then I'd ha be happy to receive that dollar per episode through Patreon. That would help immensely as well. So... Uh, let's get into this week's episode with a uh, very intelligent young Canadian photographer uh, who was at the hostel here and was doing photography research and practice uh, in here in San Francisco in the past weeks. Uh, please welcome Jeremy Brake. to a new episode of the Fun Boat Diplomacy podcast. I'm here today with Jeremy Brake. Welcome. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself to the podcast audience? Well, I am Jeremy Brake. I am from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. I'm 19 years old. I am a photographer. I am a photographer. A photographer. That's the best, best way I, where, I could put it. Uh, where is that in Canada that you're from? It's it is just about as far east you can get on mm -hmm. the mainland. Mm -hmm. And there's another island, Newfoundland, which is farther east, but Nova Scotia is about as east as east coast as you can get. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I bet a lot of Canadians are going to give me shit for not knowing the <laughs> stupid American not knowing the geography of Canada. Yeah, it's uh it's not very populated, so it's uh it's understandable. Not not a whole lot of people know where it is. I I've been explaining to everybody where it is my entire time here. <laughs> do you do you have sort of uh can you explain what the history of that area is for people oh, who don't know? Kind of. It is basically for the first, um, from 1500s to about, I think it was 1800, it was constantly either under British or French rule, and it just kind of like tiptoed, went like from British to French, from British to French, but constantly fighting over it. Um, I eventually just ended up with British rule around, I think, 16, 1700, and from there it kind of stayed. And I think it may have been a bit of Dutch rule maybe once, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, I'm certainly no... No history ma major or anything, but... Okay, well, I am, and I don't know anything about Canadian history. Oh, really? I it's, don't... I have no idea. I don't, it's pretty interesting, Because yeah. I... For example, I'm not entirely sure why uh, Quebec still speaks French, if it was... A, and why they, they, they're... Can you explain? I don't know. I, um, I don't, I'm not 100% sure either. Like, it's, a, brief, a brief history of why the hell there's so many European influences in Canada. Because in, in the United States, of course, you know that it's British, and some... Some French in like where the Louisiana Purchase was and whatever, and there's mm -hmm. fighting the French, French and Indian Wars. I guess mm -hmm. when the United States was out, or the Americans then under British rule were allied with the Native Americans fighting the French. Mm -hmm. But if you could explain very uh, generally um, what was going on in Canada, well, it's generally just a whole lot of Canada was being fought over by British and French, and 
Quebec, uh, Quebec area is kind of where the French settlers kind of had the had their home. It's where they mostly settled, and everywhere around them was kind of ruled by, taken over by the British. And Quebec is kind of the the one place where they they held on to, no matter what. And also, um, the province that's next to it, New Brunswick, has a large amount of New Brun uh, French speakers as well. Mm -hmm. Large amount of French people. They just uh, I think it's like. 30-40% people speak French, and it's like a, it's pretty mixed there, English and French, but Quebec is kind of the, the number one area, France, France held on to, and they're, they're very, very proud of that, very proud of the French heritage, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, people who go there and they tell me that, it's, that the, everything, all the signs are in French and everything, and they still mm -hmm. speak French as a primary language. Yeah. Hmm. Very trippy, trippy country. Um, Actually, now well, that I think about it, there is... Uh, some parts of Nova Scotia, I think northern Nova Scotia, where there is French settlers um, that kind of they, they had their communities and they stayed pretty small, but definitely there. And I, a friend lent me a book um, by Dolores Brow, I believe it is. I can't remember the name of it, but just she went to just about everybody in this community and took their portraits and had a had a short like uh, story about them. So kind of like a Humans of New York, about 30, 30 years ago, about this one tiny community in Nova Scotia. It was really, really interesting. Yeah. And what kind of takeaways? What, um, what kind of people were living up here? Very, very, um, very firm kind of community. Very, mm -hmm. like, uh, very independent, very, like, hardworking. It was really, really interesting. I wish I, I wish I brought the book with me. It was, it was definitely a great read. Great photographs. It was definitely, if you're into photography, try and, try and find the book. It was... Yeah, it's very I imagine, interesting. I imagine that Canada is great for photography. I don't know what kind of photography do you do. I do street photography, which is kind of like uh, candid, not portraits of people, but photographs of people. Urban uh, environment. Urban environment, yeah. It's mostly focused on the people, though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's hard to. It's kind of hard thing to explain. It's unless you have a visual visual oh, no, reference. I mean, yeah. yeah, I understand. Those mm -hmm. are some of my favorites because uh, mm -hmm. some of my favorite photographs are ones that people doing everyday things mm -hmm. in, uh, in cities. It doesn't have to be cities. Mm -hmm. um, what's really, what was really interesting for, uh, for me to discover in terms of portraying images, um, it was the sort of, I guess you could say philosophy or ethic of Johannes Vermeer. He would he, he would portray everyday things, mm -hmm. not glorifying them, but calling to attention how beautiful and mm -hmm. and uh, amazing just everyday things like a woman making bread, for yeah. example. Just that's amazing. And I have I have a photo of my own. I was at uh, Tartine Bakery in the Mission District here in San mm -hmm. Francisco, and I, w I was going to the bathroom. And to go to the bathroom, you have to go past the uh, the ovens where they make bread. And I was just standing there waiting for the bathroom, and I was like, oh, this is. I snapped a photo, and maybe I can pull it up. Oh, it's yeah. um, I snapped a photo. It's this woman uh, is working there. She's just doing that, just uh, making making bread, like mm -hmm. I guess people did hundreds of years ago when <laughs> Vermeer decided to portray that as well in his painting. I don't remember what that painting is called. Mm -hmm. We should have pulled that, but here, yeah. So this is the. She's laying out all the rolls. Oh yeah, it's yeah. yeah. That's that's a great way to put it. Yeah, just candid photographs of everyday life. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I like what you said about the the beauty in the mundane and the banal mm -hmm. is something that I really always try and express. But there's also another side to it too, which is kind of like a more illustrative side. Something more that um, I use things like light and shadows and composition to kind of tell a story that, although the person doesn't isn't objectively part of it's kind of more my own illustration that I use to kind of show the story like I had one in Chinatown where it was just um, a man reflected off glass and there was the those bars there and I kind of used that to kind of try and show like a prison mm. make it kind of look like a prison kind of have that illustrative and even though he wasn't really interacting with that it was kind of more my own um, narrative storytelling that I tried to use to to take from that and try and express. Yeah, even if you didn't yeah. feel a certain way, you could use imagery to tell a story that's entirely, we can even say, 
disconnected from that reality. Like yeah. He, he, he probably, uh, it's possible he doesn't even feel imprisoned in any way. Yeah. But mm-hmm. he used the imagery to tell a story. Mm-hmm. You know, Just like great. filmmaking, you know, yeah. fictional filmmaking, you're, you're using actors and images to tell a story. Yeah, but, his great quote is that every photograph is a lie in some way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that. There's, I, when I was studying um, geography, um, it, People in the geographical sciences always say they always come back to the the idea that all maps are lies because mm-hmm. they just as photographs they're they're telling a story they're they're expressing a trait or what's mm-hmm. in in sciences variables and things like this. That's but, really interesting. There's um there's a place that's close to the Safeways. Um, it's a museum, a gallery, I guess, where it has a bunch of paintings. But they also have a lot of old, old maps. Like, I saw... Like, it's something I never would have thought of been interested in, but I just walked in there randomly and saw these old maps of uh, the United States as it was being explored, mm-hmm. as it was being... And it was kind of... You could see the progression in, that, in it. And um, there was one really fascinating one that I was just blown away by. It was uh, the first map to show manifest destiny of the United States. And I thought that was just so cool kind of like that one kind of like one thing to kind of show like a very important part of america's history the kind of the idea that they that they have the god-given right to own the to own How the land portray that um it was just like i think split down pretty close to the middle mm-hmm. and it had the different states of where it was and then it said um manifest <coughs> destiny to the left or some something like that and it just kind of had the I think it had those words. I'm not a hundred. I can't even remember a hundred percent. Have you Have you seen the the painting Manifest Destiny? Maybe we can pull it up. Mm, it's like, I, is it have like a it's sort like of a, this angel sent from God? Mm-hmm. Let's see, Manifest Destiny. Oh, it's the first thing that comes up. I think. Uh, yeah, this one. So you have here. Oh, it's, nice. It's from yeah, I have seen that. That's mm-hmm. actually. That's around the time of of, uh, of Western expansion by mm-hmm. um, settlers. Uh, it's called American Progress, mm-hmm. 1872, from John Guest. That's a great painting, and, uh, wow. Columbia, personification of the United States leading civilization westward with American settlers going this way towards... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a rough time. Mm-hmm. Because we... I think a lot of American history as taught in, in, in history classes is very East Coast-centric. Mm-hmm. We learn about what was going on on the East Coast and all throughout, and then you have, you have, you have, of course, the Civil War, and then you touch a little bit on things like the West Railroads and things, but it all comes back to uh, the late 1800s, uh, the, 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 the contest between, between like, workers' rights and the, the robber barons, let's call them, mm-hmm. the, 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 the monopoly, monopolist capitalist so the fight between monop- uh, capitalism and socialism basically is mm-hmm. the focus of the late 1800s, where this is, or, I mean that's that's important too. But this is some interesting, really rough shit that we never really get into, yeah. like mm-hmm. the the conflict between the United States and Native Americans as they're expanding and just people having to pack up their wagons and go towards really rough terrain. Mm-hmm. I, when I was in Colorado. I, Colorado, Denver, Boulder area was settled around this time. It's fucking rough. It's if if we didn't have the sort of uh, technology and comforts of, of of today, I can imagine it just being because t- you 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 hit the Rocky Mountains and you say, hmm, "I've come this far, and those are really tall. I don't think I'm gonna go any further." But at the same time, it's it's super dry, and there's not much we can. Let's see what we can do, and then that's what they they they, they settled there, and and that's that's how that's how things happen. You got these these towns and cities popping up around along the Rocky Mountains, and the people who surpassed that got to California and the Pacific Northwest. We got some tough motherfuckers back in the day. Yeah, there was a, a great quote. Um, I heard it from John Green of the Vlog Brothers, a YouTube channel, mm-hmm. and he talked about, um, talking about kind of um, meaning in life, and he said that, somebody said, he was quoting them, that um, all of our lives are owed to the forgotten work of the generations before us, 
like everybody remembers the presidents and those that that um wanted the expansion west, but nobody remembers the actual people that were there digging digging uh, ground to put in the railroads or the people that are actually exploring. It's all of our, everything we have is kind of because of all the people that worked so hard before in generations before us. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we just focus on the leaders and generals, mm -hmm. some scientists, I guess that's cool. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, how can you teach it? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think that's... In that sense, I think it's nice to remember your own family, your own past because those are the mm -hmm. people who directly affected you. I know very little about my family, but mm -hmm. to know those individuals who will never be in history books, mm -hmm. but they're monumentally in, uh, influential in history and in your life mm -hmm. directly. I know a lot of my past generations, they were people working on the railroad in Newfoundland, um, working to create a railroad to kind of connect the whole island together, and that was they were just like simple, simple workers, just people digging and laying down tracks, and people don't really think about that. But because of those people, you have mass, mass trade between all throughout Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. There's it. I guess more and more now in history, we have. In documentaries, for example, though though they will focus on the ordinary, like the writings and the mm -hmm. the stories of ordinary people, but we don't have them in our minds. We have yeah, we have yeah. the portraits of the presidents, as mm -hmm. you said, and things like this. But uh, what I think, as far as at least Americans, we do focus sometimes on the work and sacrifice of, of the servicemen and women. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot of respect for them, and then we, we do like to learn about um, the people in past generations who went through the hardest, mm -hmm. the hardest hardships ever, which is war. Yeah. So uh, there's... It, it still comes back to people who wrote about it. So, for example, just a few years ago, it's like half a decade, five years ago, this this focus on the Pacific, because HBO did the series on the Pacific War, and you have Robert Leckie and um, Eugene Sledge, these people who, mm -hmm. after they came back, wrote about the war, and then that become they become sort of, not household names, but people will know who you're talking about if you mention them. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Winters, he fought in uh, in Normandy and in Europe, but yeah, I don't know what how it is in Canada, you guys focus on... Mm -hmm. Uh, just ordinary armed men and women in conflict? Um, a little bit, yeah. In history classes, we were taught about one really famous pilot who I've... I'm never going to remember his name, but he was the the ace pilot of Canada, and he was kind of like that... Um, everybody's really proud to be from Canada, and like... Because he shot down dozens and dozens of Japanese pilots and all that. It was kind of a war, war hero, I guess you could say. I'm, that's the only war hero I can think of on the top of my head, but as for, like, ordinary men and women, it's not really, no. not really too huge. Like, I guess it is kind of a similar cultural respect for them, but it's not mm -hmm. really It gets really, yeah. really, it gets really, really squirrely when it becomes propaganda, though. Yeah. So that's yeah. what, uh, that's what American Sniper was. Mm -hmm. I don't, I've never seen it, I don't know if you've seen it. I film. don't think so. That's with Bradley Cooper, and he's this guy, he's portraying this guy, Chris Kyle, who was, um allegedly some sort of war hero in um, in Iraq. He mm -hmm. was he was a sniper in Iraq and the immediately it got a lot of flack from people who were thinking straight, you know. So mm -hmm. I think it was Seth Rogen, the actor who who called this uh, that he, he likened it to that to the sniper movie in America, um, in um, Inglorious Bastards, when they glorified this dude, uh, this German sniper, and Hitler oh, made yeah. a movie about him. He said, "This is the exact same movie, but it's real, and it's glorifying an American sniper who is actually not really that much of a hero." Mm -hmm. And everyone got really mad about it, and it became this huge point of contention among hyper patriots and people who were actually reading up. Meanwhile, uh, allegedly, the movie is actually not even that good. Oh, but okay. <laughs> It's really poorly acted, but it got it, it was directed by Clint Eastwood. It mm -hmm. was uh, it, it got Academy Award nominations. I think it might have won some, but 
uh, when it comes down to it, when the facts finally came out, this guy was actually not a great person. He was killing children. He was, oh, wow. He was uh, also, mm, after the war, it was 2005 when Hurricane Katrina happened, he was a uh, part of this uh, government security force in, around, in New Orleans or around Louisiana, and he was, he was outright murdering uh, looters. Oh my god. So, um, I don't know, I don't know how we got onto that. Yeah, but going back to <laughs> propaganda, yeah. there was another film that came out, I think a couple years ago, I wish I could remember the details better, but it was about a, um, some Middle Eastern situation where hostages were taken, and, um, there was a task force of people, um, disguising themselves as Canadian tourists to kind of get in and try and get the hostages and get out, and um, it was very much. Is I this, remember. Is this Argo? I think it is Argo. Uh, they're. Uh, I thought they're American. They're CIA. Yeah, yeah, American. Yeah, CIA, CIA, and they disguise themselves as filmmakers. Yeah, that so, was it. Yeah. To to help out in the um, Iranian hostage crisis in nineteen seventy nine. And I remember hearing we watched that in history class to mm. show about the not only about the hostage crisis but also. Um, because it was kind of similar to propaganda. Uh, as soon as that movie came out, the Canadian government was absolutely pissed because, in reality, it was a lot of the Canadian government, uh, Canadians' right. governments that helped them get into Iran, helped them organize the plan and everything, and the movie kind of just shied, right. shied away from that. Kind of like, it was all America. We did it. We, exactly. We exactly. did it, yeah. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like 300 yeah. Like, there were 300 Spartans and maybe 800 to 1,000 Athenians, but this movie only has 300 Spartans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then meanwhile, it's, it's, it's very... Sorry, that was the first time someone's ever called me on my cell phone as I was recording on my cell phone. So I'm going to put on airplane mode so that people can't contact me. And what, what was I saying? 300? So it's... it's, it's so similar because the enemy in both cases in 300 and Argo are Persians. Yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. portray them of course I'm in in 300 they're they're demons. They are demons mm -hmm. in this in this movie. And but in Argo they're not portrayed particularly well. Just no, these terrorists just kind that of, shout yeah. at people. Yeah. And that's fucked up. Especially yeah. in in the 2000s when when the United States government is is so actively opposed to the Iranian government, which they should be, but not in, not threatening, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, that's, that's my Iranian policy, is mm -hmm. not to be so aggressive, even though they're, um, religious fanatics. Yeah, um, going back to, I saw another thing, also by John Green of the Vlogbrothers, mm -hmm. who did a video a couple years back on, um, terrorists in... Jeez, I can't remember where. Somewhere in North Africa, very famous for, I think it was slaughtering women and children, but um, it was, started off as a political movement, I think. I really hope I'm not messing this up, but um, kinda, it kind of just talked about more the idea of using violence to um, get some kind of political change, and talked about how, in if you look back at their history, there's very... There's lots of movements to try and create change through democracy and all that, but they're just the system is just too too corrupt and too broken and kind of they kind of turn to violence as a kind of resort to try and make change because there's just everything is poverty is just too bad or mm -hmm. the situation is just too terrible and it's kinda of, seems like the only only way to do it. And when you think of terrorists as just people screaming and shouting and trying to create violence, it kind of just dehumanizes their situation. You should see them really more as people trying to create back, change for the better. Back against the wall. Back against the wall, um, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, we, it starts we, with we have, trying to create positive change, but kind of through yeah, it's, violence. It's, yeah, so it's kind of... The more you learn about terrorism and with an open mind, mm -hmm. I'm not... There's definitely no forgiving the mm -hmm. kind of things that terrorists do, but you can 
get to the root of the reason they're doing things. Mm -hmm. And it always comes down to discontent with some sort of political some sort of political situation that's going on. And they're not always bad people. They just go about it in a unproductive way. You can mm -hmm. you should never get to violence. Especially if it's the state. That's the that's the most gangster version of, of yeah. violence is is the state imposing. So yeah, on the one hand, yeah, of course it's 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 terrible, but they are they do trigger massive change mm -hmm. immediately. Immediately. Yeah. They can completely they for example, Al Qaeda completely derailed the American uh, trajectory of thing. Or or maybe not. Actually the American now, habit stage. Now now we're now we're getting into some crazy stuff because it's it's possible and likely that the Americans wanted to, to do what they did. Um, even if 9-11 didn't happen, 9-11 was just the uh, catalyst for a reason, alibi for, for going into Iraq and Afghanistan and then expansion of the state and then from their like, drone bases in North Africa, for example. Mm -hmm. All these things. They, they, they might have wanted that, whatever. But Al-Qaeda did that. They, they made a change like that. Yeah. So. It works. It just... How well does it yeah, sustain yeah, uh, positive change? It, it, seems, it, seems that, it seems that the 2000s are this era of terrorism, we call it, mm -hmm. or we kind of see it that way, but it's really not. The era of terrorism was the 60s and 70s, just not with the United States. Oh? It was mm -hmm. South America, Europe, uh, and uh, a little bit in the Middle East. That's always been sort of a thing from the 50s, but... Europe and South America had it bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was. I'm not even like so. Oh, yeah, really. So, uh, plane hijackings, bombings. Uh, big examples are the IRA in in, uh, in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. They caused a lot of trouble. If you've if you've ever seen Children of Men, it's this movie by Alfonso Cuarón. He there's the uh, the movie opens. It's just like a street. It's in it's in England, and. This guy goes to a cafe and leaves, and then a bomb goes off in the cafe. This is a this is a movie about dystopian future, but that's what it was like. Mm -hmm. It's like you just go to a cafe and it blows up. It, it, you can imagine in that sort of setting. That happens every day in in, uh, in 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 like Iraq, for example. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. But in that was the reality in Northern Ireland, and in 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 Europe it was left wing terrorism. So the Red Army faction in in West Germany, they were against American imperialism, or Western imperialism, and moving towards solidarity with the communist counterparts on the other side of the the, the wall. Mm -hmm. um, and they were They're attacking department stores and military bases and things like this. And then South America, lots of violence mm -hmm. as always, and al also influenced by American foreign policy. The CIA was going in and roughing things up. So terrorism is not... It was even, it was actually more prevalent in the 60s and 70s than it is uh, now. Just now we have this security state, security yeah. apparatus that tells us that terrorism is such a threat right now. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's it like in, in Canada? What's the, what's the... It's pretty relaxed. Definitely more relaxed than, um, than here in terms of... Um, national security but it, there is definitely movements for to push for more more security it's i i don't i don't follow these things too much but um one good uh, example i have is last i went to new york last year and went through just fine came in just fine no no issues at all but as i was leaving i got stopped by the nsa for a keychain that looks like a gun <laughs> and the it's NSA literally or yeah or not the nsa sorry tsa, TSA, TSA yeah yeah TSA. It was a little, like, two-inch metal keychain, and I, the, she, the girl talked to me for a good five, ten minutes about how I cannot bring these things into an airport, and I looked at her, and I'm like, it's a keychain. <laughs> did she, was she still serious about it? She was very serious about not wanting my keychain. See, she said that if I, if I ever do it again, the police will get involved. With and a so, keychain? With a keychain, yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. I know. It's a, it's such a waste of money. It is. It TSA, really is. Yeah. TSA, I know the government's watching me and listening right now. <laughs> you are listening. Get the fuck out of my pocket. 
and stop spending money on this absurd shit. Yeah. Really, it's it's it's. I can't stand it. It it wastes everyone's time and it hasn't stopped a thing. Yeah. If, if you've stopped something, let me know. Let us all know that you've stopped something because imagine if the since since nine eleven, TSA has been getting so much shit for mm -hmm. for 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 just being ineffective, intrusive, and mm -hmm. everything. Wouldn't you, as as the government, as the TSA, if you accomplished something, wouldn't you want to let people know? Yeah. You're like, hey, we did something. You know all that criticism? Mm -hmm. we, we finally did something. But yeah. no, not, not a single time. They haven't accomplished anything. So if you have achieved something, TSA, I know you're listening, let me know. It's, it's absurd. It's a waste of money, a waste of time, and all these people could be better off serving, doing other jobs, other than letting people know that they can walk through the x-ray machine it's, it's fucking stupid and you're, you're stopping you about this little keychain gun i heard a few years ago that tsa failed their own tests in yeah. security but how they left let tons of tsa agents on planes with like knives and things yeah. just unable to really just stop their own their own under undercover people trying to do their own tests on how well they're doing, and they just fail miserably. Yeah, the sec uh, security and intelligence agencies do this all the time. They're called red team, blue team exercises. Yeah, and okay. It's, it's about uh, testing your own your own security. So they'll do. I mean, for example, I was working in Homeland Security before in DC. Really. And we would do uh, we. I mean, they're just they're more. Uh, mental sort of uh, on paper discussion sort of exercises because we were just interns whatever we were doing like what if you were making security at a, at a nuclear facility uh, and then the other team would be trying to infiltrate and if the TSA in reality was letting the red team win every time or not letting but failing to, to stop the red team mm -hmm. then Come on, we, mm -hmm. we can't waste our money on this anymore. Yeah, it's a it's a big convoluted mess. And it's like, what do you do? You can't entirely get rid of security, and you can't. Nobody wants to do an entire overhaul. It's just a big mess that nobody really wants to wants to tackle. People just kind of let it go and go and go, and just nobody really thinks themselves. Okay, maybe we should make a big change. It's hard to hard think, to kind of uh, get that kind of. I think it's just better to get rid of it entirely. It's mm -hmm. immediately. It's a waste of money, and it's it's actually what they want. They don't. They're not stupid. They're. They know it's not effective, but what it does is it gives them a lot of authority to yes. be intrusive. Of course, yeah. That's, and that's the that's the key. It's just like saying, it's just like saying, the government is waging wars, uh, foreign wars, and. They just they have good intentions, and but the wars just aren't working. Mm -hmm. They are working. They're working in the way exactly how they wanted to. They make a lot of money off of arms dealing. Mm -hmm. So, I remember when um, Osama bin Laden died. Something I never really thought of until one of my teachers pointed out at the time because I was in high school. He said, "The United States went into a foreign country with an armed team." and shot down a man. Like, how many countries in the world have the power to just walk in, do what they want, m just murder people, and then walk out without repercussions mm -hmm. in the world stage? It's And we do it... Uh, it just become normal to We do it almost every day with drones. Mm -hmm. We never declared war in Yemen. We never declared mm -hmm. war in... Okay, so, let's back up. We've never, we haven't declared war since the Second World War. Mm. I thought it was Vietnam. No, Vietnam yeah. was a... Oh, okay, uh, yeah. Well, what do we call it? Military. The, the conflict, the intervention. In, oh, right, yeah, the, that's real. The scary. intervention in Indochina is what it was called. Oh. Yeah, most people didn't know where Vietnam was when they were being sent over there. Mm -hmm. um, which is terrifying. It's really scary because you don't need as much congressional oversight to do a... What is, whatever you call it. Right. Sending people over with guns for totally good reasons. Right, because <laughs> what happened was... Uh, after the Second World War, the next conflict was Korea. Mm -hmm. And what Korea was was President Truman really fucked up on this one. I don't know how. I don't. Know, I don't know if he knew how 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 hard he fucked up on this one. 
but he decided not to use, he didn't have to declare war, he decided. He said, this is a United Nations peacekeeping police action. Mm. Not a war, so Congress doesn't have to have anything to do with it. Yeah. And so, after that, that set a precedent yes, it's to, to, not have to not have to declare war. So, Vietnam, what we had, what we came out of Vietnam with was this, um, it's a, it's called the War Powers Act, mm -hmm. which is the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States as the commander-in-chief, can deploy military force for, I believe it's 60 days, mm -hmm. without... Uh, saying anything to Congress. Of course, Congress will know, whatever. But by 60 days, he'll tell Congress, and Congress will have to decide, do we keep funding this, or do we not? Well, they're already deployed there. You're not going to say, we're going to cut off funding now, our boys are going to have to fend, not fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really, doesn't really work. So basically, in effect, you have, um, you have unilateral decision-making by the president of the United States in deploying force around the world. One person gets to decide all of that. Wow, yeah. That's what we've got. That's what's going on. In, in um, in kind of sidetracking here, in Canada, there is a, uh, there is, um, some, I can't remember the name of it, but somehow the prime minister can, in fact, suspend all rights to any people. Um, I think it's called war. It's something to do with war, but, like, it was, happened in World War One, World War Two. The entire basically the entire charter of rights and freedoms just can so be ignored <laughs> for yeah, for any reason. And World War One, World War Two, and also a third time in I think nineteen eighties when there was a hostage situation where Pierre Trudeau just suspended all rights and you can and there's photographs now of military police just in the streets walking around trying to trying to find Terror, terrorists, yeah, and it was just really kind of scary how there is the kind of this, we have charters of rights and freedoms, asterisk, if we don't sit, if we take don't them take, away. Yeah, if we don't take yeah. them away. This is our favor to you until we don't want to give it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Is there, in America, there's this fundamental, there's this deep-seated mistrust of the government. Mm -hmm. what, I think it's an American thing. Do we don't China, have this, yeah. you don't have this in Canada? Oh, no, we do, yeah. There's definitely huge distrust of police and just power in general, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what is the political situation now in Canada? It's quite good. We recently had a prime, uh, an election, new prime minister, uh, Pierre Trudeau, the guy I was just talking about. His son recently right. became prime minister. And things are things are looking up. It um it appears to be need to be very much a two thousand what was it? When was your, when did Obama first come in power? Two thousand eight. Two thousand nine. Well, he took office in January of two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah. Very similar to two thousand eight, President Obama. We had a had a right wing prime minister for I think ten ish years. And now Pierre Trudeau is promising change and all that. And he I, I think it's a similar situation where he's kind of promised but a whole is, lot. But it's his son. It's, uh, um, Justin, Justin Trudeau. Trudeau yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's promising a lot, and I don't know whether he's really able to get every single thing done. It's, um, maybe he will. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, for the most part. Yeah, yeah but you're, ni you're 19. I am 19. You're going to be optimistic about... Yeah. Everyone was optimistic about Obama, but mm -hmm. uh, I have <clears throat> lots of criticisms. Mm -hmm. Lots of criticisms of Obama, and already lots of criticisms of, of Justin Trudeau. Mm -hmm. um, oh, really? One of them would be... Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw it, that he wanted to somehow criminalize uh, hate speech, if that's oh, correct. Oh, I'm not actually aware of that. Which oh. is, um, it's this absurd, um, it's, a, it's this absurd trend in, in, on, from the left mm -hmm. that wants to make everything, it's this sort of safe space, um, social justice yeah. trend that it wants to make everyone this this, yeah, this special space this special special snowflake that uh, will always feel safe and come up to no hardships in life in life mm -hmm. and what that does for what what criminalizing hate speech does is infringes on free speech. Mm -hmm. you, you, 
you have that in Canada and the United States. You can say what you want. People might not like it, and that's the point. Mm -hmm. If you if you say something, take responsibility for what you say, own it. But no, the state comes in and says, no, you can't say this, you can't say that. And yeah, it seems a lot of people on the le far left seem to forget that people's opinions are just opinions and that you can kind of just brush it off, but in in instead a lot of people choose to kind of take offense to it and take it very personally instead of just realizing that it's just one person talking and that you can just get on with your day. Not only taking it personally, but <laughs> also being so sure that they're right. Mm -hmm. And that sort of self-affirming, if the state says it's right, though I, I must be right. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? I must be right about a lot of things too. Dude. And then they go down this rabbit hole. Um, and that's what's going on right now in the United States with um, uh, supporters of the Democrats and then the supporters of Trump. Mm -hmm is that there are violent confrontations at these rallies, mm -hmm. but they only happen at Trump rallies, not at Sanders rallies and not at, uh, at, at Clinton's rallies, yeah. because people from the left go to events, uh, Trump's rallies, and instigate. Mm -hmm. And this is something that the media will not, will not uh, be covering, because... The media, they love Donald Trump. They love, they love having this. It's the this, gift that keeps on giving. Exactly, <laughs> they love having this story every, every, every day, every mm -hmm. single day. But they won't, they won't, uh, they won't be criticizing uh, Hillary or or Sanders that as much as Trump. So they'll have, mm -hmm. they'll have the reality that that's being instigated by by the left. Um, but they'll still blame Trump supporters for being violent. Yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, it's, a, it's scary because it's such a distortion of reality. I hope I don't get shit for that, but that's the truth. You, mm -hmm. you can't, you can't, you can't ignore the truth. Mm -hmm. I do feel like when you are going into an opposite political factions, rally with a big, with some big signs screaming that you, this is wrong and this is wrong that you're racist of... that you're bad da, 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 da. Yeah, not, yeah not all trump supporters are racists not all trump supporters are this and that there if you're if you legitimately support trump you there's something wrong of course because he's a buffoon <laughs> he's not an idiot but he's a buffoon he's this he's a, he's a clown he's he's mm -hmm. he's clowning everybody even his own supporters i think um he's making a mockery of the political system he's making a mockery of the left he's making a mockery of the right and he's making a mockery of the American people too, but that they don't see it, mm -hmm. and that's what's so—it's uh, scary, but also hilarious. Mm -hmm. Do you watch South Park? Yes. Yes, the newest seasons really do have a very good commentary mm -hmm. on the whole Amazing. political correctness and yeah. kind of like any kind of extreme to either left or right is very dangerous either way. Yeah. yeah <laughs> their portrayal of Canadians as throughout oh, the whole, yeah, throughout I the whole I love series, it too, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, but uh, oh, is that something also Canadians are like, this is hilarious. Canadians love it, yeah, we, we love South Park. Because <laughs> the last thing that came up that I really thought was genius is that the Canadians, their cars have square wheels. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a small detail that's amazing, it's incredible, it's so good. Yeah. And where does that accent come from? Did they just make that up? Kind, yeah, kind of. I think it's kind of like an amalgamation of... Or an exaggeration. Of exaggeration, country. yeah. Of, um, I'd say it'd be probably closest to a Newfoundland accent, mm -hmm. which is very, very thick and hard to explain. I'm, I'm not going to do an accent because I'm just terrible at them, but mm -hmm. it's just very, probably in something similar. distortion to of a Newfoundland accent, I would say, yeah. I see. I don't, I don't really know where this weirdness with Canadians came from in South Park, but it's, it's I, hilarious. Yeah, it, it is hilarious. Yeah. This, this season has been, I've been calling it one of the greatest seasons of television of any series ever. Nice, yeah. Because it's, I haven't seen all of it, but I've, um, I kind of stopped watching South Park for a while. I saw a video just on the philosophy of South Park, and it went into the whole left-right um, extremism kind of thing, and I was like, oh my god, I need to start watching this again. Was this from uh, Wisecrack? It was, yeah, 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 I loved that video, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I watched that after seeing the whole season, but mm -hmm. every single week, every single episode, knocking it out of the park. I mean, oh, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're addressing PC, uh, you're addressing advertising media, mm -hmm. you're addressing Donald Trump, you're addressing uh, 
my favorite is is uh, is uh, Caitlyn Jenner. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I, it really just, is. Yeah, <laughs> just the way she goes, buckle up, buckaroo, and then she runs <laughs> over someone. It's that's uh, it's. I mean, it's a symptom. It's this thing that happened in 2015 where uh, Bruce Jenner decided, uh, I don't want the attention being put on my murdering a woman in, in traffic. I wasn't even aware of that until yeah. I saw the Wisecrack video, and yeah. I was like, oh my god, yeah. Yeah, so he says, he decided, he decided, I don't want to, uh, I don't want this attention on, on my, my murder of a woman in traffic. I'm just gonna turn into a woman, and everyone's gonna call me a hero. Let's go. Boom. Because you can't, once that happens, you get into this safe space of being a minority, a targeted minority. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not going to work for people who are who are paying attention. Yeah. So this is uh, 2015, 2016 is really an incredible moment to watch in history because it's this absurdity, uh, just absurd ideas being shot down. Mm -hmm. Finally, finally, because during my years in college, it was like this. Uh, this idea of uh, diversity and uh, safe spaces and multiculturalism mm-hmm. it's but that's sort of a utopia mm-hmm. it's the world is does doesn't function this way um, not to say that not to say that everyone can't get along but you will encounter environments where there's uh, a, an unbalance you'll never have this perfect balance uh, as we have it, in, as we as our situation is now, you'll never have this perfect balance. And to think that a university campus can uh, can be a substitute for the real world is a, is an abstraction. Mm-hmm. I have this um, I have a story I want to tell about um, just about kind of like whole shooting down ideas. Those are. A guy came into the coffee shop I work at, and um, there's a guy over over in the corner, and he was uh, biking along. He had a kind of like the all all leather suit that some some people wear, and he was a bit of a bit of a large guy. And the guy comes up to me, and he's like, "Oh man, got dudes in leather. It's not what I wanted to see today." And he's like, "Ugh, gross." <laughs> and the girl next to me was like, "Whoa, get over your." Uh, he said something like, "The guy said something like." Oh, I, I, that's fine for women, but for dudes, no, no way. And the girl next to me is like, "Whoa, dude, get over your gender roles," and that and check the, your privilege. I think he actually <laughs> did say that. Yeah, I yeah. Love, I love using. I love but it was just kind of like those, um, those those buzz phrases. Mm-hmm. I I use as a joke, like check your privilege and uh, triggered. I say I'm triggered all the time. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> this this this. Uh, as I said before, like perception that you're the special snowflake. Mm-hmm. But it's this, another thing too. It's just like when you when you talk to people in that way, you're kind of shooting down any attempt at meaningful discussion. You're just separating yourself from them. Like I know that they're correct and they're wrong, mm-hmm. and I need and I am required to tell you of that. And after that, it just kind of creates a divide. Like you could have, you had the opportunity. To sit to look at them and say, "Hey, man, this guy is free to do whatever he wants. Maybe he this is the way he wants to dress." To be open-minded. Yeah, be open-minded. But instead, you choose to just kind of attack and like to separate yourself. And it's kind of, I feel like there's a whole lot of very little meaningful discussion and a whole lot of blaming aggression, and other aggression. Yeah, yeah. So the, their response to what they perceive as aggressions, mm-hmm. which they call microaggressions, mm-hmm. is legitimate uh, threats yeah yeah is what's going on which is terrifying they think that mm-hmm. they think that uh, to combat microaggressions we should use real violence yeah, it's scary it's scary yeah. I'm <laughs> glad that someone so young can can see this mm-hmm. that's very hopeful <laughs> um, yeah. let's turn back to your uh, Photography. Mm-hmm. We went on a huge tangent. Oh my god! Yeah. Now we're coming back. <laughs> Your photography. Um, 
you said you went to school for photography. I did. Yes. Uh, hmm. What 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 is it? What is the curriculum of a photography? Uh, oh, it's, study. It started off pretty simple, just like rule of thirds, color, basic basic stuff, and like also editing programs, kind of getting into that, and kind of history of photography as well. And it kind of just increases, increases in um in level of difficulty, getting into other things, different techniques. Uh, lighting was a big part of it as well, understanding light, um, other things, just getting into different programs, like, I'd say I'm fairly confident in, like, Photoshop, no other things that I would need for photography, definitely not everything in Photoshop, that's just way too massive, mm -hmm. but I can do what I need to do, I can go into just about any situation and make a usable photograph if I know, if I know what's gonna, gonna come up. Mm -hmm. What are kind of, uh, course courses that you would take in this in the photography curriculum? Like history of photography, uh, lighting 101, kind of that thing. Um, let me think. I th it wasn't called Photoshop class, it was called something else, but basically we just did Photoshop and another program called Lightroom, which is similar to a bit of Photoshop. It's just kind of... Is that the Apple's? Uh, no, no, it's still Adobe, but it's, okay, um, okay. it just does more like a simple editing of like tones and stuff doesn't get into a whole lot of um it, it describe it like Lightroom edits the photo the raw data and Photoshop at um edits the photo the actual pixels which is two slightly different things it's kind of it, it, for the most part you don't really need to get need to get into it pretty nerdy stuff yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah uh, so if you were to advise someone on a complete idiot on on photography, what are some of the most important things? Um, hmm. Go out and shoot. Just go out and shoot. shoot. Yeah. Uh, if you're interested in like learning more about photography, buy buy some books. Um, check research it on YouTube. A great channel called Tony Northrup. He does a whole lot of technical stuff. If you want to get into that. Um. Yeah, just go out, do it, and find what you love. That's what I've been doing is mm -hmm. since October. I got a uh, Rebel T5. Oh, nice. And Better than mine. Uh, yeah? What <laughs> yeah. do you use? T3i. T3i. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's great. Mm -hmm. I, I like the I like the photos that I, I take with it, and um, it just comes down to playing around with the settings. Mm -hmm. And I've, when I first got it, when I first used to look at a DSLR camera, it just looks so complicated to me. Oh, yeah, But definitely. now it's, it becomes sort of an extension of your own eye, mm -hmm. basically, because in, it, you're trying to capture a certain way of seeing something that you, you see with your eye, and you want to portray it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating. I don't know... Learning how, um, how cameras see things in comparison to how your eye sees things is very important as well. Like... I look at outside the window and outside at the wall here, and the two, they, they just appear to be two different things, but how a camera will see it, it won't be able to capture the detail in one photograph. It'll, it'll have to either choose one or the other, mm -hmm. yeah, because it's just too, too the, the, the level nuances. of brightness is just too much. Right, yeah. the nuances. Mm -hmm. Are there cameras that are can be as nuanced as our eye yet, or more nuanced? It depends on how you define it. Um, okay. Like, I, to my knowledge, there isn't a camera that could capture the entire detail of the scene. You'd have to either choose the outside level of brightness or the inside. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of, like, detail, I am not able of um, looking down and, like, seeing individual levels of dust, but I can grab a macro lens and just go in and see that minute detail and blow it up. 10,000 times, and then you're, you're seeing more detail that way, but you can see detail, like, very close up, but in terms of, like, actual seeing, seeing because things it does the way come, If you do. have macro, you also come down to composition, because mm -hmm. a lot of, it, I've, I've noticed a lot of photography, um, it, with people with DSLR, DSLR cameras, they want to bring an extreme focus on what they're on the f like front forward object and then extreme distortion of the background oh which, yes i mean yeah it looks really cool yeah but to me that seems like because i i use just the automatic uh focus mm -hmm. and not a lot of people are like, when they take my camera they switch that off and then they go and do other things and i'm like um mm -hmm. I, I don't know what you think about it but what i think is it becomes 
everyone wants to do that thing. They want to yeah, put that extreme focus on <laughs> that super distortion. I'm like, I'll just let the camera decide. The camera, yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so much more random, and I can I have less control. But then the, that's the, to me, that's the fun of it is letting the camera decide the focus. It's a very uh, new thing to kind of, they call it bokeh when one thing's in focus and everything behind them is yeah. out of focus. It's very it's a very new thing that because um, modern technology kind of makes lenses better. It, creates, it makes that possible. Makes that possible easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, one person I really like called Dado Moyama. He just walks around with a point and shoot his entire, for years and years. Like the small uh, ones with the screen on it, right? Small yeah. ones, yeah, yeah. And he just created some amazing, absolutely incredible body of work. There's very high contrast stuff, and it's just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. And very, very simple equipment. And actually, just yesterday, I went to a gallery of, um, I can't remember his name, but uh, he's staff photographer for one of the newspapers here in San Francisco. And he... Um, did a gallery of just street photography that he did with his iPhone and just showed the prints of that, and they were absolutely well, the iPhone incredible. Is amazing. Yeah. And they're, well, the iPhone 5, I thought, was pretty great. Mm -hmm. I mean, has limitations. The 6 is amazing. And then I recently visited Apple down in Cupertino and met with somebody who was working on in the camera department. And oh, he says, nice. And he, he didn't show me anything. But he, well, he showed me the photos he was taking on his camera. Uh, very simple stuff we were taking around the campus, but he said there's incredible stuff coming down the pipe. I heard um, I heard a rumor yesterday that there's going to be uh, dual lenses in the iPhone 7, and that might have been what he was alluding to. I talked to another guy yesterday who is a phone company called Huawei or something like that. That has two lenses in the camera. I have. Wait, is it a, is it a camera company or a, a it's, phone? It's company? a phone company, and yeah, the guy was China, reviewing. It's a Chinese one. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Or I don't know. And he's just reviewing the camera for it, and he showed me what you could do with it, and it was very. I have no idea how two lenses in one camera works. That just. New technologies, man. We don't. We can't even imagine some yeah. things that are coming down the line. Yeah, for sure. So. But I like the feeling of having the the camera in my hand and clicking, and that that the shutter. Going. Same, yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's simple to use your phone, but there's something lost, I think, when you're not, not that, not that the control factor, because mm -hmm. you have some control on the phone as well, but it's the, that feeling. Mm -hmm. I think in 50 years, that's going to, it's going to be all be like similar, something similar to a phone, except for a very small group of people, like, just like, like how film photography is now. Yeah, 50 years ago even like 60, 70 years ago, they would use these big, massive 8 by 10 cameras, and then you're like, got a big cloth over you, you got You got release. magnesium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to mix you, your own chemicals and all yeah, that, yeah. You got this, like, magnesium thing to make the flash go. Yeah, yeah. God. And the, people would always sense. talk shit about the fucking handheld cameras, like, that's not even a camera, it's just a little toy, and then people would just, just takes a few people to make some amazing stuff with it and before people realize that yeah anything can be used as a camera I think soon everybody's gonna use using phones and stuff as that as their primary tool well, probably they be good do. They already yeah do. their phone is their primary they, yeah. they might not even have ever owned a camera is the thing. Mm -hmm. because when I was younger this it was so fancy to have a point and shoot oh yeah and then uh, and then because it was before the time when the flip phones or whatever had, had very uh, detailed photo-taking uh, capacities. Mm -hmm. But now, as we said, it's incredible. I, uh, a couple years ago, I had a flip phone because just because of money reasons, I just couldn't afford anything else. It had two megapixel camera on it. And I was like, my God, like, how, what do you What, what are we at, what do are we at now with these? Uh, I think they're like phone. eight or ten or something on most phones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just pretty damn good. You can make a good, good print off of it. Like, when I went to the... Um, gallery yesterday when I like I went up real close to the prints and I thought oh these aren't greatest prints but that's just because I'm a nerdy photographer like I look at the minute but when you stand back and look at it it looks amazing really it mm -hmm. really does mm -hmm. wait how do you how do you see the the details how can you tell if you look really really close I iPhones in general they tend to like this um when you some editing programs allow you to sharpen an image and what it does is it goes through the very, very small amounts of contrast and try and like just increase the contrast in fine details. And like, if you do that too much, it kind of creates a really awkward... It's a little grainy, it looks Yeah, like, a grainy, yeah. awkward look, which you, you don't notice if you're just standing back. But like when you go really close, it looks 
looks off, but um, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, no, it's no big though. deal if you look back. But when yeah. you go, when you look really close, you can see because there's one that was fairly big. And I could see the pixelation in that, but like, really, who cares? It's, mm -hmm. it's still a great photograph. Still, absolutely amazing. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, I think what's most important for me is framing. Mm -hmm. What what is how is the where things are placed in the mm -hmm. frame. Uh, that's what's important to me because when I, I was I was studying film, uh, not film in it, in and it of itself. It was part of my uh, German studies, but we were mm -hmm. looking at German films and oh, nice. framing was something that they really focused on in the twenties. It's like what is in the shot, mise en scène. Mm -hmm. What is what? How are we placing the shot, and how and how does that tell the story? And if you're into like light and shadows and whatever, God, don't, when it comes don't to expression, scared, yeah. expression and uh, German expressionist cinema, uh, is. Titanic. It's it's incredible mm -hmm. what they what they use. Like Nosferatu when they have the the vampire going up the stairs and then oh, there's yeah. the shadow of him like right before he appears. There was a um, a show kind of ties in back a bit um, to more towards uh, government and um, government and like the murdering and just stuff. A show called Death Note, which yeah, I, I love it. Oh yeah. If you have, if you look at the lighting in that. The, just the lighting itself, besides the composition and everything, which is also amazing, the lighting is very, very subtly um, another way that they express the kind of godlike um, meaning to it. Like, if you look in the first episode, I'm re-watching I'm re the show because it's amazing. Yeah, look I need to re-watch it. It's yeah. a, do you want to explain to the audience what that is? Because we both know what it is, <laughs> yeah. but it's like a synopsis of what it is. It's a show about a high school student who gets supernatural powers from a god of death, and he has this notebook where he can kill whoever he wants with uh, just knowing their name and their face, and that's it. And he kind of has this whole idea of creating a utopian world. He's going to destroy all the evil and only create a utopian world and, and him as sort of like the benevolent dictator of the world yes godlike benevolent dictator of the world he is godlike it's such a, it's yeah. such a philosophical mindfuck this oh, show is I know. so good it's so so good I've recently rewatching it too I've noticed that every person that he kills there's never any hard evidence that they ever did anything bad that's the thing yeah I'm, I'm just noticing that now like when I watched it when I was younger I was like oh this guy's I can kind of get behind this guy, but now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, God. Then you see scary. the balance of uh, L, is that his name, the other guy? L, yeah. yeah his, his, uh, that balance. Mm -hmm. uh, it, comes it comes down to the, ba it's like from, from Eastern philosophy, the idea of yin and yang. You need, yeah. you need a balance. You can't just have this, this <laughs> God-like benevolent, uh, allegedly benevolent being mm -hmm. uh, who thinks he knows all. Uh, calling all the shots, there needs to be some sort of, not controlled, but sort of chaotic balance. Mm -hmm. But going back to the lighting, if you look in the first episode, he'll be walking by the book, and you'll think, oh no, what's the, what's the point of that? And you'll be going, and his face will be in the light, and as soon as he starts to talk about, maybe, well, what if I do try it? He turns his back to the light, and that's kind of like a Met, kind of like the whole cinematic, the god, the god, like the morality, the true morality is him going towards the light, but he turns his back to the light, and um, happens quite a few times actually. Uh, he'll be talking to the Shinigami, and he'll be talking about, well, maybe what if I didn't do anything? And he'll be in the window facing towards the light, and he said, No, I am the god of the new world, and he turns around and he's backlit, and mm. he's just turning his back to the the real morality. Oh, I just I just love it so much, yeah. And also when he talks about his own idea of like why he's doing it, he goes away from the window and turns on his um artificial light of his desk lamp. Right. And he kind of uses that it's an artificial idea of morality yeah, that artificial. he's using. Yeah. 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 That's something I've yeah. just recently noticed and I thought, I, oh wow. Yeah, I watched it back in college and I haven't watched it since. I should rewatch it. Mm -hmm. It's really incredible. I mean, at the 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 end of the there's two seasons, right? At I the, think at, yeah. The, I think at so. the end of the second, I thought it got a little. Yeah, it, second it season wasn't as bit. strong, but, but I thought it was still good. But the but the mm -hmm. build up um, and the the morale mor the moral questions mm -hmm. are amazing. It's, yeah, it's really well written. Also with the cinematography, um, one episode where he finally finds out the name of the girl who was investigating him. Mm. I can't remember her name. She had black hair. And as um, 
he tells her to go kill herself, and you see her turn around, and she walks away. And it, it kind of just, all the, uh, the background kind of just melts away, and they get the stairs kind of coming up to the noose. And it obviously wasn't happening in reality, just kind of illustrating what was going on, but showing her just going to up the stairs was so cinematic and so beautiful. Yeah, I've really, I've tried to use that in a few times in my photography with, no, it didn't really work out, but it's kind of one idea that I've always had. But you can work on it always. Yeah. You know? I've thought about making a film as well. I thought a little bit about making a film about depression, and I thought that would kind of be one of the ending, ending scenes, just a kind of a backlit kind of person walking up a set of stairs to kind of show the, the implied kind of walking up the stairs to the noose. That would be amazing intertextuality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're coming up on our time, but that was a fascinating talk. Oh, that was great, yeah. yeah. I was really scared this wasn't going to turn out as well, and I was just going to be awkward and uh, silent. Nobody, but, nobody but, ever but, knows what's going to happen yeah. on, me on, these, on these shows. But yeah, thanks for being on, and it's... it's thanks for it's, having me, this is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's hopeful that there's such a, a, a brilliant young man out there working on... <laughs> Thank you. Thinking about, ...thinking about things critically and making amazing art, and thinking about art critically as well. Mm -hmm. so thanks again.